if nothing else, Jesus' own saga at least gives me a good model to follow on my journey to holiness. It's all well and good, but I gotta say that Albertus Magnus and Thomas Aquinas could learn a thing or two from Joni Mitchell. We love our loving, but not like we love our freedom. The whole scheme of St. Teresa's and of the whole of religion for that matter is built first on the assumption that I am able to freely choose to avail myself of the help proffered to me and second on the stuff of goodness that's central to the spark that is all it takes to get a fire going as we used to sing at Bible camp in 1974. Free will and inner goodness are dandy ideas, but they do not conform to the reality of my long history of responding to God's help with no thanks, I'm good. As long as I still have a spark of goodness, a scintilla worth saving, I can remain the driver of my own future, whether in an ecologically righteous EV or that 63 Ford Fairlane station wagon with no radio. I doubt that the agony of the cross, the Lord's forsake, dying forsakenness and his shrouded lifeless body in a tomb all happened in order to leave my hands on the steering wheel. Aren't those things instead prima facie evidence of human inability, of my inability to recognize God as a willing helper and of our craven clinging to self-righteousness at all costs, even the cost of the life of Emmanuel, God with us. I think everybody's favorite doofus Saint Peter can help us here. The gospel story of Peter's relationship with Jesus is what in literary terms we call a synecdoche, a small thing that stands in for the whole, like Berlin means the German government. The relationship between the disciple and the Lord is exactly how it goes down for all of us. Peter thinks well of himself. He's like Blanche Dubois in A Streetcar Named Desire, who says, I don't want realism, I want magic. Peter bears the illusion of his ability to endure in faithfulness and assumes that he can even tell Jesus how things should go down. By no means should it include crucifixion and death. So Jesus has to stop the fisherman's folly and right now, get behind me, Satan, he commands. Jesus trains his light of the world spotlight on the truth of Peter's willingness to go the distance. Before the first rooster crows in the morning, you will deny me three times. And Jesus will do nothing to spare Peter of his cock crowing realization in the priest's courtyard. Peter, the self-addict, has to bottom out before the risen Jesus can show up on the beach later and respond to the poison of three denials with the anti-venom of three biddings to feed his sheep. Do I love you, Lord? Not so much, apparently. 
but it's the admission of craven self-help that makes Peter worthy of the new call to dole out sheep fodder. My penchant for standing aloof from help has to be cut down. Like Peter, my love of self-freedom must be done with. This is why in the 1518 Heidelberg Disputation, Martin Luther declared that free will is a fiction and why in his Romans lecture, Luther said step one in faith appearing is to eliminate my sense of goodness. In other words, God has to eliminate my Everest high anthropology and self-regard. As long as those things are in place, I am my own Lord, and I remain stuck outside the gates of Eden with our first parents, empty-handed, keyless and clueless, hopeless and hapless. The help I think I want and need is affirmation and encouragement, not suffering and death, not what Sarah just told us about. Affirmation and encouragement allow me agency Suffering and death wrench it out of my hands. I firmly believe that I have no need of a savior. I might need a cheerleader, a life coach, or a spiritual director, but mostly I'm pretty well equipped, what with my precious bootstraps for pulling and my loincloth for girding. My dear friend Ryan Cosgrove Stevenson in his sermon last Sunday talked about how difficult true prayer is. He said, I don't tend to turn to God until I have nowhere else to turn. It's an obstinacy we all carry with us. It's a vestige of our oldest, and I like this, most unoriginal sin. The desire to play God for ourselves. That cursed mistrust of everyone else and foolhardy overconfidence in ourselves. However, when we learn that hardest of lessons, that we can't do it ourselves, we're finally ready to truly turn to the one from whom all blessings flow. True prayers, Ryan says, arise when that fantasy of self-sufficiency is buried. Real prayers come to life where dreams are buried. In order for help to be mine, God has to do a little eschatological gate crashing. The predestined election of this sinner that Paul talks about in Romans 8 must be done without my wanting, requesting, or willing it. Not in some far off pie in the sky cloud in heaven, but down in the depths where help is needed, whether I recognize it or not. God comes to deal with my lack of ears to hear by inserting two words into me. The first is a word that speaks truth to my desire for power and control, status and security. This is a word my friend Natalie Hall calls the pinch, or as Paul names it, of course, the law. And the second word is the promise, a divine sweet something best whispered into coffins and columbaria. If I can't gin up my free will to move toward God and if I can't open my eyes to see the folly of my efforts and of how following that path leads to the nothingness of the grave, then the word that was in the beginning with God has to train a spotlight on my core 
without dressing it up in either euphemisms or a cushioned satin lining for my casket. A coffin is a coffin is a coffin, no matter how fancy, and the body in it is just as dead. Jesus gave the double-barreled truth that kills to Peter with his get-behind-me warning. It's a roadblock that the young rabbi from Nazareth sets up. No, Peter, that is not how it works. Yet no sooner was Jesus arrested and dragged away than Peter reverted to his usual game, saving his sorry, well, we're not in Sturgis, we'll call him gluteal muscles, saving his backside from association with the guy in custody by thrice denying him. God's killing word came wearing the pinching mask of Peter's interlocutors questioning him. Aren't you that Galilean who hung out with that crazy self-styled Messiah? No, no, and no again. Finally, it wasn't even a person who smashes Peter's nose into the rot at his core. God revisited the Balaam's ass story and spoke through the crowing of an early rising rooster. Cock-a-doodle, you, Peter. See how you are? Peter's shock at realizing his own depraved self-protection is palpable. It's a biblical WTF moment. The chief... I learned that from my college students. <laughs> the chief among the 12, nakedly craven in spite of his own so-called free will to do right. The good he would do, he can't do, and the bad he'd rather avoid doing, he stepped right into, like a sneaker, into a fresh pile of dung. He's like the Cornley Polytechnic Drama Society. Anybody ever heard of them? It's, it's, part of, it's, it's part of the play, The Show That Goes Wrong. And now it's sequel, Peter Pan Goes Wrong, now playing up the road at the Barrymore Theater with Neil Patrick Harris in a stunt casting. In these raucous shows, they're about this amateur drama society um, with not enough money and clashing egos. Um, and in, the, in, in them, good intentions unravel and everything that can go wrong goes wrong and it brings disaster. Self-possession and the egotistical ham acting of sin brings down the entire set and characters down from the flies, especially Peter Pan hanging from wires. The best vantage for spotting Jesus' help for you is not a cliff overlooking the vista of your hallowed accomplishments and further potential. The best place to see it is in a grave of your own digging. That's the place where we might finally find a voice that cries out for help. Most likely though, when we bottom out, we will be as mute as a corpse with only groans at the back of our throats so that the Holy Spirit has to be the one to call 911 using sighs too deep for words. I know that's the place where the truth of the gospel comes to the fore, but I can't position myself there. I have to discover myself there instead and be surprised by my need. Now be kind to me for a few moments because I'm gonna tell you 
about my most embarrassing self-revelatory incident. While I was working on my doctorate, I had an on-campus job as an apprentice in early modern imprints in my institution's library. It's a fancy title for somebody who checks to make sure the library's catalog has all the information entered correctly for individual microfiche copies of thousands of 16th century documents. It's a fancy title, but really it's ignominious factory work, just the same. And we had a seminarian coworker who was a bodybuilder. As an utterly buff fella and a proud bearer of massive quads and delts and legs and guns, he was wont to proclaim that it was his practice to wear a thong as his preferred undergarment for which we gave him an endless string of ribald ribbing way thicker than the string that ran between his cheeks. <laughs> now hang on to that thong image for a second. It's going to come back, okay? Now in those days, my son Sam, our only kid, was in fifth grade, and he was a roller coaster fanatic from the time he was four, and he built the Winnesheet County homemade fair in his bedroom. Some kids do dinosaurs, others love Polly Pockets and Pokemon and Furbies, but Sam was bonkers for roller coasters. He drew maps of imaginary amusement parks. He had a spiral notebook in which he'd created 20 years of maps that on each page showed the development of a park and its yearly changes and additions for the coaster riding public. Our family joined the American coaster enthusiasts. There's a group. And we went to CoasterCon for a few years. One summer we did 13 parks in 14 days. We stood in queues with 40-something coaster nerds still living in their parents' basements and had them educate us on the nuances of coaster variations using their preferred language of coasterese. I have ridden 237 different roller coasters around the world and kept track using CoasterCounter.com, all because of my kid's passion. When Sam was about to turn 10, we learned that Roller Coaster Tycoon, his favorite video game, computer game, that the board game version of Roller Coaster Tycoon was coming out. So my coworker and doctoral classmate, Mary, who needed a new kitchen timer, joined me on a trek to the Holy Land that most people probably call Target. Uh, sorry if there are any Canadians here. You can substitute Canadian tire for Target here. So Mary went off to the kitchen aisle, and I headed to the toys at the back of the store with our cart. Sadly, Target's shelves didn't yet have copies of the new desired board game that would have made me dad of the apartment building, if not dad of the year. And when I turned around, Mary was back with timer in hand. And I turned to her and saw that in our cart, she'd placed a hanger with three women's thongs attached with little pastel clothespins. And thinking that she was pulling a prank on me because of our bodybuilding thong-wearing coworker, I picked up the hanger and used words that we had mocked him with many times. 
Ew, butt floss. Who would wear something this uncomfortable between their cheeks? A woman nearby gave me the stink eye for public inappropriateness. And Mary said to me with utter seriousness, seriousness that is not our cart. I stopped fondling the staring stranger's perspective intimate apparel and slowly backed away knowing once again the good I want to do, I don't do, and the bad I don't want to do, I do. When will my cleverness ever take a back seat to societal and ecclesiastical decorum, to my wife's high sense of propriety? to not embarrassing my kid by making a scene or to simple doing unto others. I'm only able to abandon myself when all other available options either run out of steam or break down in pieces. As a little book on low anthropology, which you may be familiar with says, Jesus knows that only when we have exhausted our capacities will we look in faith to the horizon. You can buy it in the bookstore over there. It's on page 195. The come to Jesus reality happens in those target toy aisle moments when I'm left with someone else's future underwear in my hands and the neon sign over my head says guilty. It's like the old Gary Larson Farsight cartoon you may know of, the panel with the guy walking out of a restaurant restroom and the sign over the door says, didn't wash hands. <laughs> Help? I'll only go for that ignominious option when I can no longer make a choice. And the world flashes the unignorable sign that my unimpeachable goodness is a farce. When I was almost 20 years old, I worked at a lakefront Bible camp called Misodak. It was in northeastern South Dakota. Get it? Misodak. For years, the Lutherans who owned the camp served kids who came for a week of swimming, canoeing, kickball, campfires, Bible study, and worship. God plus fun equals Bible camp. This camp also had a long established and I think venerable program of serving developmentally disabled adult residents from the Redfield State Hospital and school an hour and a half away. This was back in the day when society made sure that the lesser among us were out of sight and out of mind by housing them in institutions. But each week of the summer at Nisodak, a bus from Redfield would roll into camp and we'd welcome a group of 10 or so singularly memorable campers to join the fifth and sixth graders who'd arrived the day before. In one week, the resident assigned to my cabin was named Robert. My first night with the boys before he arrived, I let them know that the next day we'd have a ninth person in our group. And I told them his name was Robert and that they had a very important job to do during the week. Their task was to keep Robert in mind every time they went to some camp activity. They needed to be relentless inviters so Robert would feel included. When Robert stepped off the bus before lunch on Monday, 
I saw that he was this slight, short, shy man in his 30s with this high countertenor voice. And my campers did their job faithfully. They invited Robert to everything. Hey, Robert, let's go canoeing. Let's go do crafts. Hey, Robert, let's get our towels and go to the swim beach. But as faithful in bidding him to join them as they were, my campers continually contended with Robert's reluctance. To every invitation, Robert responded, I can't do it. I can't do it, buddy. The boys would say, Robert, let's go play kickball. He'd say, I can't do it. I can't do it, buddy. Robert, let's go to the canteen for ice cream. I can't do it. I can't do it, buddy. Robert, grab a jacket and we'll go to campfire. I can't do it. I can't do it, buddy. Our beloved Robert would certainly never be diagnosed with the disease of unholy self-regard. That summer was 43 years ago, and I surmise that Robert is probably long gone, but that spirit of his lives on for me. I can't do it. I can't do it, buddy. I hear Robert's voice when I read Luther's assertion in the Heidelberg Disputation. It is certain that one must utterly despair of oneself in order to be made fit to receive the grace of Christ. I can't do it. I can't do it, buddy. Those are the words of one fit for Christ's benefits. A month or so ago, Jason Michelli, who was supposed to be my plus one at this conference, but he got COVID. Dang it. He sent out a piece on Substack, Substack titled, God's office is at the end of your rope. He's onto something there. I won't reach out for the available help while the strands woven into the rope remain true and my grip remains strong. This is something that far too few preachers understand. They step into the pulpit to give some helpful tips for successful suburban living, assuming their hearers have the wherewithal to gin up their grit and gumption for the Lord. Their biblical information, their holy wisdom, and their PowerPoint slide deck on their 60-inch screens to the sides of their chancels is no help at all. The power of the gospel that Paul can't wait to let slide trippingly off his tongue in Romans 1 is missing in action because one thing is absent, the break. These preachers can only deliver empty words and Christ is to no effect because they assume the pews, the folding chairs, or the theater seats with cup holders are populated with whole people who maintain continually existing cells and have lots of potential. How very high anthropology of them. Like Erasmus, Erasmus of Rotterdam in the 16th century, they believe folks can be talked into availing themselves of the possible. I wonder if this kind of preacher has ever actually read the Bible. The holy narrative of God's ongoing relationship with those he's elected is like a walk through my local animal rescue league. The biblical figures of faith in Hebrews' great cloud of witnesses are skinny mutts and strays with rib cages showing and a skittishness born of being stuck in storm grates and abandoned to the elements. 
They have no AKC certificate to re recommend them. They have no hope for a, for a forever home. David, lying mutt. Rahab, well, there's breeding involved, but um, you know, not good breeding. The Ethiopian eunuch, you know, he'll never sire pups. The Syrophoenician woman, well, you remember the epithet that Jesus called her. Scripture is a long drawn out account of unadoptables and unclaimables in cages whom Christ chose to bring home. Each of them has faced the break when their hoped for future has been removed. On a bright September morning in 2001, I woke up in Pierce, South Dakota. It was a stop, it was a stop to stay over with dear friends from my first parish as a pastor after I'd attended my cousin's funeral three hours further west in the Black Hills. I remember gas up, gassing up my car at the grocery store to start the last eight-hour leg of the drive home to St. Paul. And when I turned on the ignition, the comforting voice of Carl Castle, remember him, came on NPR. And from him, I heard the first news that a plane had accidentally crashed into the World Trade Center here in New York. And because this was before my first flip phone and spotty self-coverage on the Great Plains, it meant that I drove hour after hour after hour on what the South Dakota singer Sean Colvin referred to as um, a South Dakota two-lane on a wheat plain with live news coverage that this was no twin prop involved and that this was devastating destruction and that this was terror. I had not a single person who could speak to me a word that was big enough to outweigh the horror and the evil that we're capable of. I was desperate. In Summit, South Dakota, at the top of the Coteau de Prairie Hills overlooking the flat western flank of Minnesota, a convenience store clerk at least shared my horrified condition. And that all came back to me yesterday when I visited the National 911 Memorial Museum in Lower Manhattan. I can't imagine a more somber memorial this side of Buchenwald. Walking through the minute-by-minute -minute displays, it came rushing back. That thing glitching my diaphragm. The first inkling of panic, the desperate need for human connection. And I made the mistake then of stepping into the gift shop and being confronted by tchotchkes and camel flags and thousand piece puzzles and jewelry and goddamn posters. It's exactly what Dave talked about last night. The money changers in that secular and holy temple had no real word in response, but only more junk to occupy a spot in my already cluttered house that already causes me anxiety. The best I could hope for was the calm serenity of two square black holes and flowing water and a couple thousand etched names outside. It offered me something at least, but not enough, as we all do in the face of the break. I needed a preacher. You know this, right? Preaching enters the world of cheap, 
cheap trinkets and marketing for the sake of profit and moves from meaningless words being mouthed like Charlie Brown's teacher, wah, 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 to the delivery of a word that raises the dead only when it's directed to those pew sitters whose days are numbered and know themselves as goners. The proclamation of the gospel has to be given to those whose smug self-assurance and declarations of no thanks, I'm good, have given way to the question, I look to the mountains, from where is my help to come? When the preacher knows not only where the graves are located in the cemetery plat book, but also where the living dead sinners are hiding, then help is on the horizon and God's second gospel word of promise can be spoken. If as a preacher, I ignore the vast majority of people looking for platitudes and pleasantries sitting in front of me, and instead direct my words to the few who've been stretched thin, who are gaunt with hunger. I'm talking about you, Debbie. I will have something worth saying. Joni Mitchell's people who love their loving, but not like they love their freedom and autonomy, have no use for the announcement of what God has done in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. But the ears of the dead though on hearing, can recognize one speaker and one speaker alone. Your position standing over the grave or in it is of ultimate importance, ultimate importance here in order to receive the help available to you. We think of Jesus as a kind of equal opportunity helper, and that's certainly an apt description of our Lord. On the other hand, it's the nature of his help that it is not designed simply to augment what I already have, but instead is aimed at filling the emptiness within. His help echoes his creatio ex nihilo in Genesis 1, his making something out of nothing. As the hymn cries out, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. I guess if you're not interested in my ability to draw on my store of 70s music trivia and you think I'm not as good as Dave Zoll on that count, maybe I can give you a little something from my cranial file drawer marked forgotten TV shows of my youth. Everybody remembers All in the Family, Mary Tyler Moore Show, The Waltons, Good Night John Boy, but nobody nowadays cites a show that was as popular as The Six Million Dollar Man in its heyday emergency with an exclamation point. The series featured two paramedics at Station 51 of the Los Angeles Fire Department and the staff at Rampart General Hospital as they responded to various weekly emergencies without exclamation points. When an accident or crisis occurred, the buzzer in Station 51 would go off and the duo of Johnny Gage and Roy DeSoto would head out in their truck to provide whatever help was needed. An IV drip of ringer's lactate, the jaws of life for vehicle extraction, the paddles of a por portable defibrillator. Clear, right? Help of the helpless. That was the EMS team of Station 51. They showed up, not where people were self-sufficient, 
not where they could walk away from an unfortunate mishap, but for those who couldn't resolve things on their own. An injured driver in a car teetering on the edge of a cliff, a lineman shocked working up high on a transformer, a high school athlete who's keeled over at after school practice. The paramedics of emergency didn't race to the scene of tax problems or marital disagreements over whether to use harvest gold or avocado green for the fixtures in their bathroom remodel. You remember those colors. They went where help was needed. And in that promise, the characters in the series taught America about what help they might expect when they dialed 911. And it's exactly what we saw actually happen on 911. The helpers, emergency personnel who carried injured people down the stairs out of danger and who climbed those same stairs to lose their lives. The help offered by Jesus also, with an exclamation point, is a paramedic's help at the scene of the crisis, help at the tearing part of the roof to lower down a paralyzed fella, help at the point where the self-help book category on Amazon will no longer avail you. With Jesus, help is provided for all of us, but the actual helping is actually done to a narrower clientele. The pool of real helpies is much smaller because it's only when you can't walk away from your disaster on your own power that you will see your need. Perhaps that's why the disciples are such dopes when Jesus spots a man born blind in John 9. They simply assume that the man's condition is connected to sin. Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents that he was born blind. None of them understands that there's no moral question involved here. It didn't matter who sinned because Jesus' bailiwick is, is not those with moral potential and community organizing gifts, but of healing what's broken, filling holes in people's spirits, raising the dead. Contrary to the popular book, there are not just five love languages. They missed a love language that Jesus has, a sixth love language that just reels him in. It is the need for his help. I suspect John tidied up that story in chapter 9 when he said that Jesus put spit on the guy's eyes. I think Jesus was really slobbering at the chance to do some giving of sight. I think the blind man's needs set the divine salivary glands to working overtime. It's this moment that we, that we blind, blundering, dead, and dying sinners, reluctant to call out for help, are given a foretaste of our own mouth-watering feast to come. For the healing of the blind man is no different from the raising of Lazarus as a bit of eschatological good news. The helplessness of the one who's healed is the same lack of agency and autonomy that is characteristic of every last body buried in every last grave to be raised on the last day. It's not just that we'll get to live again on account of the resurrected, crucified one, 
but that the cross and empty tomb reveal God's laser-like focus on the hollow tomb that walks around in your shoes. Your emptiness, your loss, your Kierkegaardian sickness unto death. These things are newly carved burial places in this earth for Jesus to pour himself into. The vast unfilled cavern at your core is exactly the space the Lord seeks to occupy so that the life you live will be his. Whether you live or die, whether you have stage serious cancer or a perfectly tuned body, whether you have a long-lasting faithful marriage or have had five husbands and the current guy isn't one of them, whether you are adept in any situation with any group or lack all social graces in connection to car target carts and thongs, one day you will face your end. At these moments of lack and loss, hopelessness and haplessness, these are the signs of what's ahead. And yet these times where you need help can also be the actual end for you. In the early 1530s, Luther preached at the funeral of his prince, John the Steadfast, in the castle church in Wittenberg. And in his sermon, he spoke of the prince's death just days before as if it were nothing. Because he said two years earlier, John had died a much bigger death when he defended the evangelical reformers in the face of the power of the church and the Holy Roman Empire arrayed at the Diet of Augsburg. The reformers had presented their teaching in the form of the Augsburg Confession and John the Steadfast of Electoral Saxony was the first prince to affix his signature to the document. Luther argued in his funeral sermon that John's willingness to lose it all for the sake of the gospel by signing and making a public stand for the evangelicals gospel word was in fact the more important death. So important that the prince's dead body before them was a mere trifle. And now we've arrived at why it's a gift to be at your end with the word help being your only remaining prayer. The cry of help is nothing less than the moment when the host at the parable of the banquet comes to you and says, friend, come up. That's the moment when you will like your freedom and autonomy less than you like your loving. That's when you can get Joni Mitchell's crazy feeling without thinking you're in trouble again. Because that's when Jesus' look of concern becomes, I think, a delighted smirk. And he says, I got this. Relax already. Your trouble and turmoil are temporary. I'm putting it all in the context of your ultimate end. Enjoy your forgiveness, my beloved. Where the Beatles' help left John Lennon, if not Dolly Parton, hoping for a fix of what's broken, Jesus' help offers something completely new. Your cry for help brings on the life of the firstborn of the dead, the seat of honor at the table. In fact, your cry for help allows you Jesus' own place at the right hand of God to be handed over to you. 
when you know that you are so helpless that you don't even want help, when you're so far gone that you don't even know how hopeless you are, when all you can imagine is maybe, please, a quick fix, our Lord comes to you with even more. And like Paul in Philippians, you will be able to say that what has happened to you has served to advance the gospel because you finally see your need and the helper who comes. Even at your lowest, even at your deathbed, you can echo the apostle in rejoicing in the Lord always. Instead of holding on for dear life, you can hold on to the dear life of the risen one who has healing in his wings. And you will know the truth of St. Paul Simon's Graceland, where he sings, there's a girl in New York City who calls herself the human trampoline. Sometimes when I'm falling, flying, or tumbling in turmoil, I say, oh, so this is what she means. She means we're bouncing into Graceland. Help me is what Revelation's host arrayed in white had spoken. It's why their robes are washed clean. Help me is a cry from nothing. And it is the gate to everything that flows from that first day of the week in ancient Judea to today. Cry your cry. Plead your plea. Confess your nothingness. Yell help with an exclamation point. Or utter gobsmacked groans. Either way, losing your life, you will gain it. That is already as good and done as done. To quote the Little River Band and to please John Glover, who's a fellow aficionado of 70s and 80s hits, hang on, help is on the way. <laughs>